So you're probably wondering why there's a new episode 41 up. I'm not a perfectionist, but I just wasn't happy with what I had put up before. And it didn't do the show justice. I looked over what I had put together, reworked it, and added some new content. Enjoy. This episode of Off My Shelf contains coarse language and adult conversation. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, my name is Tracy James and welcome to Off My Shelf, a podcast about movies that are well off my shelf where we go through my DVDs and talk about the movies in my collection. In this episode, Erica was supposed to return to talk about Darkwing Duck, but I have yet to figure out how to remotely record an episode in a way that actually sounds good. If you have any notes or ideas, let me know. Anyways, like I said, I'm talking about Darkwing Duck this week, a Disney cartoon about a daring detective duck that adores articulating and alliteration. That took a lot of effort to say. I didn't realize how much alliteration there was in this show until I had to watch the episodes back to back. I found it very interesting. I personally enjoy when people play with language, for example puns. A pun is a play on words that produces a humorous effect by using a word that suggests two or more meanings. People who know me know that I love a good pun. (laughs) Actually, that's not true. I love a bad pun too. Friends know that they can get me laughing with bad puns, especially the daddiest of dad jokes. Like, why did the pony not sing in her recital? Because she was a little horse. (laughs) But I also thoroughly enjoy some good alliteration. The occurrence of the same letter or sound at the beginning of adjacent or closely connected words. Every once in a while, I articulate alliteratively amongst acquaintances. You would have noticed this if you listened to the Christmas episode or Halloween episode. I give the group an alliterative, let's call it, title. The thing is that you have to have a vast vocabulary and your brain has to work like a thesaurus to do it right. Because you don't want to lose meaning, but you also want to be understood. It seems simple, but can take effort, and that is what I enjoy most of all. Darkwing also spouts dialogue like a 1950s gumshoe, right out of detective novels, pulp magazines, and film noir. That is how you get him saying lines like, A desperate criminal is at large, and terror runs through the streets like a pair of cheap stockings. It's thoroughly enjoyable. But the dialogue isn't the only way the show plays with language. There are names of characters, organizations, as well as locations that are punny, witty, and entertaining. We can start with Darkwing Duck himself. His alter ego is Drake Mallard. It literally means male duck. Then there's Goslin Mallard. Her first name is playing on Gosling, which is what you call a young goose. So she is a young goose duck? They live in a city called St. Canard, and Canard is French for duck. Lots of ducks in there. There are also the names of other characters like Dr. Reginald Bushroot and Dr. Rhododendron, who are botanists. Taurus Bulba, who's a bull. Vladimir Grizzlikov, who's a grizzly bear secret agent. Then there is a super secret intelligence organization, Shush, and their nemesis, Fowl, the fiendish organization for world larceny. Then you have the names of the actual episodes like Apes of Wrath, Paradox, Trading Faces, and Days of Blunder, just to name a few. All references that most kids would never get. The show was released in 1991, right when how cartoons were being made was changing. A lot of the mid and late 80s cartoons were about pushing toys. 
as in there was a toy and a show was built around it and used to sell to kids. This was done with many shows including Care Bears, He-Man and She-Ra, Glowworms, Transformers, G.I. Joe, etc. Darkwing Duck was an original property created by Tad Stones for Disney that emphasized action instead of adventure and was their first show that was a genre parody, taking notes from classic superheroes. You can see this in his costume, weaponry, and general shtick. He is dressed like the Shadow, uses a gas gun like the Sandman, and practices his vigilante justice at night like the Batman. We all know Batman with his dark, brooding behavior as he puts fear into criminals in the depths of the night. But the Shadow and the Sandman have both fallen into relative obscurity. The Sandman, not to be confused with Neil Gaiman's Sandman, was a DC Golden Age superhero in the 1930s. He wore a fedora and a gas mask and used a gas gun to sedate criminals. The Shadow is also from the 1930s, but he was published in a series of pulp novels and had a popular radio drama. He wore a large brimmed hat and a cape over a suit. Sound familiar? He may also sound a little more familiar because of the 1994 film starring Alec Baldwin. For some reason at that time, a few studios thought it was a good idea to dust off obscure heroes pulled from serials and make big budget movies out of them, including 1996's The Phantom starring Billy Zane, 1989's Brenda Starr starring Brooke Shields and Timothy Dalton, and 1990's Dick Tracy starring Warren Beatty, Madonna, and Al Pacino. That last one wasn't that obscure, and was pretty good actually. It even garnered seven Oscar nominations and won three of them, including art direction, makeup, and original song for Sooner or Later, which was sung by Madonna in a husky, seductive, lounge singer voice. Sooner or later, you're gonna be mine. Despite being too young at the time to watch it, I remember having a Dick Tracy t-shirt as a kid. Why not? It had my name on it. The episodes in this show played out just as pulpy and ridiculous as those from the old serials, but it was a lot sillier than I remembered, much more slapsticky. I remembered having humor, but more along the lines of the 1994 Spider-Man cartoon. It still aged pretty well, but as an adult, I found this storytelling falling a bit flat, but I think kids would totally still enjoy it. I mean, not everything aged well. There were comments made in this show that made my ears perk up, like there's no profit in nutrition, and without paper money the economy will tank. Boy were they wrong when they said that. Societal focus has definitely changed since that time, and comments like that make it brutally obvious. I mean, the nutrition industry is a multi-billion dollar industry that doesn't just cover consumables like food, juices, and waters but also fitness, which includes gyms, sports facilities, programs, and accoutrement to go along with it like gear, accessories, and clothing. I mean, huge established companies completely change their focus and marketing to get in on this trend. Look at fast food, for example, where they have added salads to menus and changed terminologies so they seem less of what they are. They have added terms like cafe and bake shop and bistro to their name. There is also the proliferation of gyms. They are big business and are scattered through big cities and small towns alike, allowing easy access to a workout or at least a feigned attempt at completing a resolution. All this has a ripple effect that pours into other industries like medicine, fabrication, and construction. 
Now, when it comes to money, something like 90% of the world's money is currently digital. So I don't think a lack of paper money would tank the economy. Not anymore, at least. I mean, it would definitely have adverse effects if something like $5 trillion just disappeared, but they could just print more. Isn't that how they got out of the Great Depression, essentially? Plus, physical money has been slowly disappearing for a while now. More and more people choose to pay for purchases with cards or their phones, or they just simply make online purchases. Soon it will be all digital. It will be attached to our identity and we will walk around with this one thing that has everything about us on it. Wait a second. I'm describing a smartphone. Back to Darkwing Duck. Another reason I love rewatching the show is listening to the voices. There are some amazing and prolific voice actors used in the show. Just look at who voiced Darkwing Duck, Jim Cummings. He has been doing voice work since the mid-80s and has racked up over 550 credits since then. He has been part of everything that will trigger nostalgic euphoria in a Gen Xer, including Transformers, The Real Ghostbusters, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Adventures of the Gummy Bears, Tailspin, Tiny Toon Adventures, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Winnie the Pooh, and so much more. He has actually been the voice of Winnie the Pooh since 1988, and the fourth person to take the task of vocalizing the iconic character. The character was first brought to life on television in 1960 as a marionette, articulated and voiced by Franz Fazakis, who in himself is well known in the world of puppets as he designed, articulated, and did special effects with the Jim Henson Company on Labyrinth in 1986, The Muppet Movie in 1979, and The Dark Crystal in 1982, as well as worked on The Muppet Show and Fraggle Rock. After him, Pooh was voiced by Sterling Holloway from 1966 to 1977, Hal Smith from 1981 to 1986, and then finally the job went to Jim Cummings. Cummings has also been the voice of Tigger, my favorite character in The Hundred Acre Woods, even though the utterly depressed Eeyore comes in a close second. While looking all this up, I also found out he did the voice of Shredder in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, you might say, that's not right. Shredder was voiced by Uncle Phil. You would be right. Shredder was voiced by James Avery, a fact I've known for a while, but I remember my mind being absolutely blown when I found out. But the cartoon, which was on air for 10 seasons, actually used six people to voice the character. Avery was the main voice for the first seven seasons, William E. Martin for season eight and 10, and then they used alternates to fill in the gaps, which were Dorian Harwood, Pat Frawley, Townsend Coleman, and then Jim Cummings. My mind has been blown again. Jim Cummings was also brought back to voice DW in the new DuckTales show that premiered in 2017. I just have to say, I know I've talked about being sick of people remaking and rebooting things, but DuckTales did it so well I cannot complain about it. I thoroughly enjoy watching this updated version, and there are a number of reasons why. 1. The theme song. It is practically the same, just modernized a bit, kind of like what they did with the 2012 TMNT. 2. They did not forget the source material. That's really key. 3. The updated aspects of the show do not neglect or conflict with the original source material. Four, the show is just generally well-written. Seriously, it's hilarious. 
And five, the voice actors they picked are superb. David Tennant, Ben Schwartz, Danny Pudi, and Bobby Moynihan. I love that I can now hear the difference between Huey, Dewey, and Louie, but still don't ask me which one is which. Before I continue, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, so I'm going to let you know I'm going to talk about a pretty specific detail in the new show. So if you aren't caught up, I am letting you know you might want to skip ahead a bit. We good? Okay, so in the new show, they did this gray ghost kind of episode. In this new DuckTales world, Darkwing Duck was just a TV show and they go to him for some help and he's like, I'm just an actor, I can't do anything. And then he turns it around and is like, I can do stuff, let me help. I found that a really interesting way to bring him into this show, but also wondered why it was done that way. I always believed that Darkwing Duck and DuckTales were in the same world, just different cities, because they were in an anthropomorphic world, they shared characters, and the visual styles of the show were very similar. So he could have just been like a superhero visiting Duckburg from St. Canard. But it turns out that Tad Stones, the creator, did not believe this, and that may be why they introduced him into this show in that fashion, to keep their roles separate but known to each other. And spoiler. Sadly, they did not bring back the original Launchpad McQuack into the new show. Terrence McGovern voiced everything Launchpad was a part of in the 90s, including TV shows, specials, movies, and even video games. I'm not sure why he wasn't brought back for the new show, but they did use him in another video game that was released in 2013. He has been working in the industry since the 70s, but has mainly been doing voice work since the late 80s. But he has been in front of the camera many times as well. He even had a small role in one of my favorite guilty pleasure films, Inner Space. It's just so much fun and so campy. From 1987, the movie stars Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, and Meg Ryan. It kind of takes the premise of Fantastic Voyage, also an amazing sci-fi classic, where they shrink people and inject them into a body and then they go bananas with it. I haven't watched a movie in forever. I should really change that quickly. Then there's Christine Cavanaugh, who voiced Goslin. I found several mind-blowing things out about her. I'm going to start with the sad thing. She died in 2014 of undisclosed causes. She was only 51, and that actually made me pretty sad. Then I started going through her filmography. She was the voice of both Dexter from Dexter's Lab and Chucky from Rugrats. I mean, I watched Dexter's Lab excessively. One thing I will always remember from that show is omelette du fromage. Also, Dallin from Monkey was really great. But I also watched a decent amount of Rugrats, so I'm not sure why I didn't put that together before. She's also the voice of Babe, you know, from the movie Babe, about the pig. Confession, I have never watched that movie, but for some reason the line, that'll do pig, that'll do, has been well known to me for a very long time. This next tidbit wasn't a surprise to me at all, and just gives me an excuse to talk about one of my favorite shows. The X-Files. She made a cameo in one of the best episodes of the show, Small Potatoes. And this is not just my opinion, but many people's opinions. It's on all the lists and everything. Anyways, if you don't remember, it is the one with the guy who had a tail removed as a kid, who can change form and impregnate several women. 
and tries to seduce Scully. She plays a lady named Amanda Nellian, a woman who had watched Star Wars 368 times as it was her favorite movie and she starts humming the theme. Which circles back around to Dexter's lab as his password to get into his lab is Star Wars. But all you can say is omelette du fromage. Another tidbit is that the episode was written by Vince Gilligan, who is now most known as the creator of Breaking Bad. There are so many other voice actors. In the pilot episode alone, there was Tim Curry and Marsha Wallace. Tim Curry voiced the first bad guy introduced in the series, Taurus Bulba, who was only in three episodes. We all know him from his amazing ability as a character actor, from Rocky Horror Picture Show, to Clue, to Legend, to It, and so much more. But he has done a lot of voice work as well. He has done voices in Tailspin, Batman Animated Series, Gargoyles, Freakazoid, Duckman, and a bunch more. One thing that blew my mind was that he did voice work in Wing Commander 3, the game that was ruined by a horrible movie that starred Freddie Prince Jr but was the first movie to have the perfected technique that people now call bullet time. Yeah, no, it wasn't The Matrix. It was just used way better in The Matrix. I mean, both movies were released the same year, even the same month, but Wing Commander was just a couple weeks before. Anyways, another person who did voice work in the Wing Commander video game is Mark Hamill. He voiced Christopher Blair, AKA Maverick, and now we are back to Star Wars. Marsha Wallace, do you know who that is? She's in the pilot for like two minutes and as soon as she spoke, I was like, Miss Krabappel! Her voice is so distinctive. I knew it instantly. After the two-parter episode, she only comes back for two more episodes later in the series. There is also another Simpsons alum, Dan Castellaneta who is the voice of Homer and a bunch of other characters, including Krusty, Groundskeeper Willie, Itchy, and Sideshow Mel. In Darkwing Duck, he voiced the regular villain, Megavolt, showing up in 21 episodes of the show. Actually, that was the villain that showed up the most in the whole series. I didn't know this before, but it really shouldn't be that much of a surprise. But he also was the voice of the robot devil on the other Mad Groening show, Futurama. He also did a few voices in the Rugrats franchise, so he would have worked with Christine Cavanaugh previously. Frank Welker, who I talked about in the last episode, was also a decent part of the show, as he showed up in 18 episodes as a variety of characters. There was also Michael Bell, who voiced Quacker Jack. Like Jim Cummings, his filmography is filled with everything nostalgic. He has been acting since the 1950s and was doing voice work since the late 70s, amassing a filmography of over 350 credits. He did voice work in Captain Planet, G.I. Joe, Gargoyles, Smurfs, and so much more. He's also my Star Trek connection! I mean, him being in Gargoyles is practically a Star Trek connection in itself, as a bunch of Star Trek main cast did voices on the show, including Jonathan Frakes, Marina Sirtis, Brent Spiner, Kate Mulgrew, and Nichelle Nichols. But Frank Welker and Jim Cummings both did voices on Gargoyles as well. What makes Bell a proper connection is that he was actually in episodes of Star Trek. He was in the Encounter at Far Point, the first episode of TNG. He was also in two episodes of DS9, The Homecoming and The Marquis Part 2, 
from season two. And then he did voices in a couple of video games. They weren't all the same character. While scrolling through the list of voice actors, I actually found another connection that I didn't realize was there because it is not part of the box set that I have. Renee Oberjanis. I am sorry if I said that incorrectly. Rest in peace. AKA Odo did a voice in one of the later episodes of the show. Rob Paulson was also part of the show voicing the agent of foul, Steel Beak. When I first heard him, I was like, I know that voice, but I couldn't quite place it. So when I looked him up, it made so much sense. He is the voice of Yakko Warner, you know, from Animaniacs. As soon as I read that, I was like, yes, that is what it is. And Yakko's world popped right into my head. Bum, 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 bum. United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama, Haiti, Jamaica, Peru, Republic, Dominican, Cuba, Caribbean, Greenland, El Salvador too. That was totally from memory. Side note. Well, I guess this would be a side note to the side note. I had to look up some stats about the song. One, the song was written by Randy Rogel, who wrote for Animaniacs and Batman the Animated Series. Two, the song first aired in 1993, so long ago. And though it covered most of the countries of the world, it missed over 50 of them. Three, Despite missing a bunch of countries, it references several countries more than once by mentioning regions, territories, and cities. Four, there are three countries mentioned incorrectly. Trinidad and Tobago is just mentioned as Tobago. As a Trini, I noticed. Papua New Guinea is just called New Guinea, which is an island grouping that is partially owned by Indonesia. Gambia and Bahamas should technically be called the Gambia and the Bahamas. Five, a bunch of new countries have been created since the song's release. There was an update to the song in 2017 that tried to rectify that, but there are still many places missing from the song. There was a ton more stuff, which is fascinating, but you can check out the Animaniacs wiki for the rest. Check the website for the link. But scrolling through all of Paulson's 515 credits on IMDb, I was like, what? He didn't just voice Yakko, but also Pinky, as well as several other voices. He was also part of G.I. Joe, Gem, Transformers, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Spider-Man, The Tick, he was Arthur, Dexter's Lab, Johnny Bravo, Powerpuff Girls, Phineas and Ferb, Rick and Morty, and the list goes on and on. It blew my mind how many shows some of these people are in, but I guess that is a testament to how good they are at their job. I mean, I love H. John Benjamin and Seth Green and Christian Shaw, but they sound pretty much the same in everything they do. So you hear them and you're like, that's this person. Don't get me wrong. I love the work they do in Bob's Burgers and Archer and Family Guy and TMNT and Gravity Falls and so much more but their distinct voices are easily picked out. Whereas some of the people listed above, I would never have guessed as their ability to manipulate their voices is just mind blowing. Also, can I mention how I totally enjoy the theme song? This was during a time when they put serious effort into theme songs, which is a practice that waned for a while, but I have noticed it's something that is coming back. 
Theme songs didn't just open the show, they also gave a background to characters and set up what you were going to watch. They got you excited, pumped. This is one reason why I always say that the Thundercats theme is one of the best cartoon theme songs. It is so hype. Thundercats are on the move, Thundercats are loose, better feel the magic, hear the roar. Thundercats are loose, better thunder, 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 Thundercats. It's so good! That is closely followed by the 1960s Spider-Man theme song, but the Darkwing theme is definitely in like the top 10. Before people get all up in arms yelling, what about Batman and the Simpsons? Those themes are amazing. It's true. I totally agree with you, but I am looking at lyrical content coupled with the music. But if we are including just music, Batman would be first, followed by Thundercats, The Simpsons, then Spider-Man. Hmm. And Gravity Falls would have to be in there somewhere. Oh, and X-Men and TMNT. Oh, there are so many that are so good. I almost forgot Tailspin and Gem and Steven Universe and DuckTales and the list goes on. I wonder which one is gonna be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Tailspin. I remember waking up all blurry-eyed at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning, something I now consider absolute torture that I would never wish on my worst enemy, then clicking on and staying tuned to the television until about 10 a.m. It got you going and you lived off of that show high for the rest of the day, running around and going nuts. But this is an experience and concept that generations to come will never understand. The last official airing of quote-unquote Saturday morning cartoons ended in September of 2014. Most people probably didn't notice as how we consume shows and media in general has changed so much. But with the advent of channels dedicated to animation and kids programming, as well as on-demand and streaming services, it was deemed unprofitable or not worthwhile by most networks. If you wake up early on a Saturday, most channels run infomercials. What a waste of airtime. But those, those were good times. I guess I haven't really talked about the box set or the actual episodes of the show. I have the Darkwing Duck Volume 1 box set that, according to the packaging, was released in 2006. It covers the first 27 episodes of the series, including the two-parter pilot, Darkly Dawns the Duck. The alliteration started really early and ends at smarter than a speeding bullet. I was surprised that the show only had 91 episodes overall and was originally aired just in 1991 and 1992. I could have sworn the show was easily on for five to six years with a lot more episodes. But I guess as a kid, you aren't really paying attention to that kind of thing. Plus, with reruns, it may have seemed exactly that. In the pilot, we don't actually get an origin story for Darkwing Duck. When we are introduced to him, he's already a vigilante for justice, stopping evildoers in St. Canard. We catch up with him on his nightly rounds and you see the kind of antics he gets into. But it seems he is more interested in making a name for himself, like, say, Booster Gold, than just for the good of the city, like Daredevil. 
But what you do get in the episode is DW picking up his sidekicks, Goslin and Launchpad. I have to say, Launchpad's involvement isn't really that interesting. He's just a guy who thinks he will be a good sidekick, and then keeps showing up and doing stuff until DW pretty much says, fine, sure, you're my sidekick. But Goslin's intro was something I did not remember. I always thought she was simply Drake Mallard's daughter, but it isn't that simple. She's actually adopted by Mallard at the end of the two-part pilot after they bond when he saves her. But it is immediately clear that her spunky attitude mixed with adorable charm will get them into some fun antics throughout the show. He also cancels the plans of his first noteworthy bad guy, Taurus Bulba. Up until that point, he had been dispatching the antics of petty thieves and lackeys. In the next episode, you get one of the few villain stories that have an origin. You are introduced to Dr. Reginald Bushroot, a love-struck botanist who wants to be more like plants by being able to absorb nutrients and energy from the sun and the air around him. He gets his wish when he tries a concoction he developed on himself, turning him into a half-duck, half-plant that can control plants. He is like a much goofier version of Poison Ivy. But he is mainly out to get revenge on his ex-employer, mean ex-co-workers, and to profess his love for the one person who was kind to him, fellow botanist Dr. Rhododendron. Most of the other villains already exist in the world and you just go on an action-filled adventure as DW thwarts their diabolical and regularly illogical deeds. There is Lilyfoot Goonie that is like an evil Ant-Man, as he controls ants and can shrink things, and his plot is just to shrink buildings, steal from them, and make them part of his mini golf course. When he meets Steelbeak, an agent of Fowl, who is more of a Bond villain than a cartoon villain, he is trying to flood a desert to get access to a kingdom rich with oil called Oilrabia. Real subtle. Megavolt has the power of electrokinesis and is not quite right. His thing is that he wants to free anything that is powered by electricity as he believes they have been enslaved by mankind. Or should I say duck kind? There is also Quackerjack. He is a jester that has manic mood swings and likes to fight with toys. But unlike the Joker, this jester dresses in motley, is a lot less deadly, and has clear goals to get money, get his toys back on the market, and to squash the competition. Though taking influence from many comic heroes and villains, all this was softened and adjusted for the impressionable minds of the young audience that would be watching it. There were no deep conspiracies or sexual innuendo or dark underbelly. While there are always dark aspects to shows and movies like this because they are supposed to show triumph and perseverance and you have to have something to overcome to get that across. So there are sad aspects like the death of a loved one, uh, bullies, insecurities, mental instability, and defeats. But this is all buried in brightly colored, flamboyantly animated slapstick adventures that involve mutants, aliens, vampire potatoes, cocktail-making gorillas, and even evil Elvis impersonators. So to recap, Darkwing Duck has aged surprisingly well. Though some of the content is out of date and the antics a little silly, the show overall is still fun to watch with decent storylines and great voice work. 
I think little kids would get a kick out of being introduced to a show like this, and parents would feel the calm of a nostalgic euphoria. Well, I guess that's it for this episode of Off My Shelf, again. Until next time, you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at OhMyShelf, or you can send me emails at OhMyShelf at gmail.com. Off My Shelf will be back on May 4th when we'll be talking about high school shenanigans and teenage rebellion with Days and Confused and Fast Times at Ridgemount High. Hope you'll be here to listen.